Hi, everyone. So today's episode was completely produced by Murphy, but I just wanted to pop in with a quick note before we start. There's some mention in this episode of trapping with snares, which is illegal in Vermont and a bunch of other states. So the trapping in this episode was all done legally, but if you're thinking of using snares, make sure to check the laws in your state. Okay, here's the show. Hi there. Hello. I'm Murphy Robinson. And I'm Ari Earlbaum. I teach hunting and archery for a living. And I've never hunted in my life, but I'm curious. On this show, we're going to interview hunters of all genders to explore all sorts of perspectives on hunting, our relationship to our prey, and the wildness within ourselves. Welcome to the Hunters Podcast. And there was that crunching sound in the forest from where they come from. I'm like, oh my god, do they have luck? To me, it sounded like the whole forest sighed. Today's episode Survival Strategies with Jesse Krebs. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to share with you my interview with Jesse Krebs, a former survival, evasion, resistance, and escape instructor for the U.S. military. My usual podcast collaborator, Ari Olbaum, has been very busy recently, so I'm taking a turn producing this episode entirely on my own. I won't have any of the fancy sound design that Ari is so good at, but I think you'll agree that Jesse's interview is so engaging that you won't even notice. I interviewed Jesse this past spring at Winter Doe Camp, a women's outdoor skills weekend here in Vermont, where we were both volunteering as skills instructors. I've named this episode Survival Strategies with more than one meaning in mind, because Jesse talks about both hunting and trapping for subsistence, and also about emotional survival in the male-dominated culture of military survival trainings. Trigger warning, in Jessie's story, she briefly refers to both childhood sexual abuse and workplace harassment, but none of her descriptions are explicit. In this episode, Jesse and I talk a lot about women and make some generalizations about binary gender. I want to acknowledge before we get started that gender is a spectrum and each of us has our own experience of gender in the world. I think in this interview, our choice to lean on the gender binary as a shorthand was useful given Jesse's background in the military and other highly gendered spaces. As a queer butch person, I don't see my own gender as binary, and I want to send a big shout out to all the genderqueer, non-binary, and transgender hunters out there. You're awesome. We see you. And I think you'll find some useful insights in this interview, too. One last note. In this interview, Jesse mentions offering tobacco to honor dead animals. And offering tobacco is traditionally part of some Native American cultures. We talked about it more afterwards, and she shared with me that she received this practice from a friend who is Apache and Greek and has strong connections to her Apache heritage. Let's remember that it's really important to understand the heritage of any practice like this and do them in a good way. Typically, that includes building relationships with Native people, asking permission, and actively supporting Native survival. For folks who aren't Native, it's also a really powerful act to investigate our ancestral Earth-based traditions through our own ancestors and consider building our practices around those. That's something I think a lot about, so maybe we'll get into it more in another episode. Okay, I think we're ready to jump into the interview. Enjoy! So, can you introduce yourself? 
Sure. So my name is Jesse Krebs. I'm originally from Michigan, joined the military at 18, and uh, I've traveled around quite a bit and done some wilderness skills, both in wilderness therapy and teaching generally survival, not primitive living skills. There's definitely a difference between those two. So I've done quite a few of survival skills, taught as a global survival instructor for the Air Force for a while, and done a little bit with team building and challenge course type of things as well. Awesome. So how, what drew you to survival skills? Is this something you started specializing in in the military? I actually started before that. My mom is a wonderful outdoors woman. She really loves, especially kind of the more typical things though, gardening, but she's also really, really good fisherwoman. She is an expert, a fish whisperer is what I call her. Everybody can be out lined up fishing and she'll show up and they haven't caught anything. And within 10 minutes, she's starting to drag them in and people start to edge a little closer, a little closer. Hey, uh, what you using for bait there? What you got going on? So she has definitely some abilities in that arena in particular. And when we would go out camping, when a lot of people were using like uh, they were doing car camping or RVs or something along that line or trailers, pop-up trailers, so we just had a tent, you know, and sleep it on the ground. So she kind of got me into that initially. And when I was 12, we did a trip to Europe and uh, we just had backpacks and we did six weeks traveling around in, in Europe with backpacks. And so we'd sleep on the floor and the train station or out in the woods someplace, you know, wherever we happen to end up. So, um, so it started there. And I, as a child and an infant, I had infant and childhood sexual abuse and I felt like I couldn't trust people. Uh, and I had a lot of difficulty dealing with people. And so when I would wake up with nightmares and, and things I would, and flashbacks, I would just go outside. I would sneak outside and I'd go climb a tree and I always felt safer outside. And I would talk to the wind and I would talk to the stars. And, and that was really my connection and my, my feeling of safety was in the outdoors versus with another person. I didn't run to mom or anybody else. I would run to the outdoors. So my connection with the wilderness and interest, if that's what you really want to call it, I call it more of a connection really with that started when I was very young. That's awesome. Um, raising up the girls, right? Your, your mom had knew a thing or two. Have you found, so you've been involved in training survival skills in the military, correct? Correct. Yeah. I was an Air Force SEER instructor. It's spelled S-E-R-E. The military loves its acronyms. So that stands for survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. So anywhere that anyone had a chance of going down, if anybody had a chance of being in combat, uh, because we are the United States, global superpower. Uh, you never have an idea. We don't really know for sure where we might end up. And if somebody's in the military for 20 years, they could end up in many different environments and also be in a conflict. So being trying to evade the enemy. So not only how do I just survive in those environments, but while I'm surviving, how do I also take care of my basic needs of, of being protected and staying away from getting caught. I don't want to end up in a POW camp. So we would also teach escape and evasion kind of techniques and resistance. How do I resist interrogation and that kind of thing. So yeah, that was my job. Wow. That sounds fascinating. I'd love to learn some of that stuff. Um, what was it like for you uh, being a woman and particularly a woman instructor and leader in that field in a, like what I assume is probably mostly male dominated uh, learner community? Yeah, at any given time, there were about there are about three hundred uh, active duty SEER members, survival instructors in the Air Force, and about ten of them are women. So it's a very limited field for women, and uh, I didn't really get it. I think when I was I was eighteen when I went in the military, and. I don't know. I think I was I was very tuned off from emotion. I think because of my abuse in particular, I didn't really feel a whole lot. 
but I knew I loved the outdoors and I really wanted the job. And so when we were chosen to go up to the school, it, it didn't really, I don't really think I consciously thought about being a woman and then a bunch of, with a bunch of guys there. And there was other, one other woman in, that went through the training with me, Liesl. And so we were, you know, stuck together in a lot of things because we were both female and it didn't really, I just tried to act more masculine, really, uh, even though I had a connection with the wilderness and I don't like seeing something hurt if it's not necessary. And I hate seeing something suffer or be in pain. That's a big trigger for me. Um, I would push that aside and it's like, okay, we're going to kill the rabbit. We're going to kill the goat. We're going to kill the duck and we're going to butcher this out and make it happen. And I would just like, okay, cool. Even though there's a, a big part of me that's like, do I really have to do this? Why am I doing this? And I want to do this the, the most delicate way I can or the way that's going to be the most um, least painful for the animal. Uh, and I wouldn't even do it if I didn't feel like I have to. It was like, okay, I'm just going to shut that part off. This needs to happen right now. This is what's expected. I want this job. This is what I'm doing. And so I really tried to just buck up and act manly, even though I was five foot four. <laughs> and uh, they did an article. It was a bunch of women were doing odd jobs in the military. Like they had the first female fighter pilots while I was in the, in the Air Force. And so they did an article in Airman Magazine on women in unusual career fields. And I happened to get chosen for SEER as being, hey, this is an unusual career field. And so they described me, and I never lived this down at Sierra. You're, you look more like an, um, a high school cheerleader than a survival instructor. It's like, oh, great. You know, and I'm working with a bunch of men. They're like, ha ha, give me an A, give me, all right. Like, yeah, oh. shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so it was definitely different. And um, there was sexual harassment back then. So dealing with those types of things and jokes, you know, um, even during training, like I was asked to stand up and tell jokes that had to do with sexuality. And, and so it was, it was definitely a different atmosphere. But I, I think in a way, because of my abuse prior, I was able to just kind of shut off emotion and say, yep, 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 blah, blah, blah and act kind of like a robot and say or do whatever needed to be said and move on. So, and it was, it was definitely a tricky situation though. There were times when it was definitely uncomfortable and, and things could have gone south. Luckily I had some, some of the men were acting more like brothers rather than being jerks. And so that, that helped definitely. Today's episode is brought to you by the Fish and Wildlife Department of Vermont. We talked with Kim Royer, a biologist with Fish and Wildlife. She works with fur-bearing species like pine martin. A pine martin's a member of the weasel family, and they hunt under the snow. It's reddish colored. They have these little eyebrows that come up from the middle of their eyes and makes them look quizzical. They're, they're really quite cute little animals. Pine martins were native to the state of Vermont, but by the late 1800s, there were none left. So in 1989, Vermont Fish and Wildlife attempted to reintroduce them to the state. Over the course of three winters, they brought 118 pine martens back into the state from Maine and New York. They planned to release them into a forest near where Kim lived. So she went above and beyond the call of duty and volunteered to keep them in her family's barn. We actually fed them tuna fish with uh, raspberry jam. We'd make a little hole in the tuna fish, put raspberry jam in it, or cat food. So my kids, who were very young at the time, probably five or seven, they would stick a little stick in the one end of the cage and attract the marten, who were very feisty and would growl and attack the stick. And while they were being distracted, we'd quickly open the door, put the, the cat food can in there or the tuna fish can in there, shut the door, and then the kids would withdraw the stick and we'd watch them eat. Vermont Fish and Wildlife is full of people passionate about conservation, the type of people who bring their work home with them and feed tuna fish to it. You can learn more about Fish and Wildlife's conservation efforts at vtfishandwildlife.com. 
You can support their work there by buying a Vermont Habitat stamp or getting a hunting or fishing license. That's vtfishandwildlife.com. So now that you are teaching under your own flag, um, you've been telling me that one of the things you love to do is to teach women these skills um, and just really bring this to a different population. So how do you teach these things differently when you're teaching a group of women versus a group of military fighter pilots? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think women are generally a lot more open to a more spiritual aspect, a gentler aspect. I find that women uh, are much more interested in a skill when there's a difference between you can either skill your way through it or you can muscle your way through it, right? Men will tend to just muscle their way through it, and that's considered manly, versus women, I think, understand, hey, there's probably a simpler and easier way to do this. I don't need to over-muscle this. I can think my th- way through it. Um, like walking up a mountain. I remember in training, we would, were walking up this really ridiculously steep hill. Luckily, we didn't need snowshoes for it, so we put the snowshoes on the pack. And Liesl and I, the two women, we're trying to get our way up the hill. And the, the instructors, our instructors are teaching us to do traversing, to go side to side, not to depend on vegetation, stand on your own two feet, stand upright, how to use your feet. And the, bo- the guys, the rest of our team basically ignored that and bear crawled up the mountain hands, legs, and they're sweating like crazy and they're tired, but they just had the muscle power because we're all of us are carrying the same size pack. But Liesl, she's like two inches short. She's like five, two, right? And maybe 110 pounds. I'm like five, four and 120, 230 pounds. And we've got the hundred pound packs on that the guys do, but they're 200 pounds plus, and they're just muscling their way up. And Liesl and I can't do that. So we are having to concentrate on the skills. And after a while, we get tired of trying to muscle it and we start listening to the instructors. Okay, wait, I need to lock out my leg. Okay, I need to move sideways. Stop trying to go straight up the hill. Don't grab that log. Oh, Liesl grabbed the tree that was down and now she just tumbled 20 feet back down the hill with the log. Great. Okay, don't do that again. So we're learning the skills because really we didn't have the muscle to be able to do this. So it was really important for us to do that. And I feel like women in general are more accepting of that. I don't have to have the physical strength. I can learn it in a different way and use my brains over brawn. I definitely agree with that. I, I definitely find that when I'm teaching bow drill, especially, because bow drill fire making is something that you can sort of muscle your way through. You don't need to be as good at the techniques and the preparation and have the most perfect set if you're just like a football player with huge upper body strength. But also a skinny little 13-year-old girl can make a great bow drill call if she is using all the right techniques, all the right form, and has prepared her set really well and just has those skills. Definitely. Yes, I found the same thing. Um, so in your teaching of survival skills, uh, you told me you don't do a whole lot with hunting. It's more about trapping and snares as a survival technique. Can you tell me why that is? Yeah. So hunting one, we as modern humans don't tend to be very effective hunters when it comes, especially to primitive tools. Now, if you're out there and you're used to using them all the time and you're pretty good, you have a pretty good success rate and you're, you don't hike, you're setting up in a tree stand or something and waiting for the game to come to you. That's a little different. A lot of people, when they have the idea of hunting, though, they go traveling. They're going to go hike and they're looking for something. That doesn't tend to be as effective. And I'm using a lot of calories. And also that's when people are most likely to get hurt is when they're moving from point A to point B. That's when they're going to stumble, come off a cliff, trip over something. We had a guy come off a cliff at nighttime trying to hike around, right? So that's a dangerous time and you're using calories. So instead, we would say, sit around your fire. 
Go to first during the day. Go ahead, grab all your all your materials, a bunch of nice straight sticks and things, maybe a few Ys. And you're just going to sit down around the fire, and you're going to make 20 trap sets tonight. And you're just sitting around the fire. No, not a huge expenditure of energy. Next day, next morning, you're going to go out. You're going to set all those up, set them in place, leave them. Make sure you flag them so you know how to find them again. Go back that night just after dusk. After all the critters have done most of their activity, I'm going to go around. I'm just going to check them. Got anything? Great. Grab it. Reset the snare. Go sit down. So it's much more energy efficient to just set up a trap or a snare and much more effective than in a survival situation. I'm not wasting those calories. So what kind of animals have you caught in a trap or a snare? Let's see. What have I caught? Mostly I've done, uh, we've definitely got quite a few squirrels. Uh, I have done, I've caught a feral cat at one point. Oops. Um, and I've other done other things where I more like tried to spook it away. Like at one point there were some bear, black bear down around where I live. And they kept trying, coming in and knocking over my garbage can. So I set up something that would just be a deterrent. So it was a deadfall trap that would hit them on the head or back at the back and say, Hey. I don't like it when you do that. Quit messing with my stuff, right? So, and we would teach traps, but mostly I've done more hunting for the rabbits and things. So, just smaller game. I would teach also how different ways to do um, deer snare though as well. So large game as well, mm-hmm. which there are techniques for that that are kind of cool. Nice. And when you're hunting for rabbits, what do you use as a hunting tool? Mm. We used uh, something at one company that I worked for called Wilderness Quest, which unfortunately now is gone. They would have everybody make something called a dig throw. So at one end, it was a fairly fat, about the size of your forearm uh, in thickness, really sturdy wood. And at one side, you would chisel it down to like a chisel type shape. And the other side would be rounded more like a club. And so it was about the length of your forearm as well. And so then you could use it with a sidearm throw to then almost like a helicopter blades basically going for the head of the animal and knock the critter out and then you can come over if it's still alive give it one more quick club and you're done and so the whole stick could be used and you would just carry it in your hand while you're walking and if you happen to spook something you could quickly whip that out and throw it at them and knock them down so if it's ptarmigan you know so different birds squirrels again chipmunks rabbits any kind of small game you could just use your dig throw for it and then you also had your digging stick to dig up a root or something you found or dig your whole hole to go poop in either way <laughs> that's awesome such a simple tool so many uses um so it sounds like you've done a lot of your teaching in environments where like emotions get suppressed and mm-hmm. that hasn't been able to be openly expressed or yeah. uh, in wilderness therapy, we're trying to get people to express their emotions, but it's not always working. Right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so do you, do you have any kind of uh, particular way of honoring an animal that you've killed or an animal that you're going to mm-hmm. eaten, or is that something that you haven't had space to develop? I feel like I do personally, and if I find especially something on the road, um, in a lot of Native American traditions, tobacco was a big thing to use. And so um, if I try to keep a little patch of tobacco in the car, especially so that if I come across an animal that's been hurt or I need to put it out of its misery, it's really suffering, I'll do that. And then I'll light a little, I'll just put a little tobacco by the head and light that on fire and let the smoke go up. And I'll, I'll let myself feel some emotion and honor that spirit. I'll make sure I pull the animal off the side, try to get away from the road a ways so that other things can feast on that without having themselves be put in danger as well. And I'll try to, whenever I'm teaching anything with students, talk about that. Like something is giving its life so that you can live. Let's honor and respect that. I cannot live without the sacrifice of something else. So just honoring that process and realizing it's it's hard for us to do that when we go to a store and we pick up a package of meat. We don't really, it's hard to make that connection. You didn't look that creature in the eyes. You did not disassemble its body and see its organs. Um, you know, sometimes we'll catch animals that are pregnant, right? 
And it's like, this is, this is, this was a living being. There was at one point, one of the first ones I'd gone years without, uh, skinning an animal or doing anything. I'd left the military and I hadn't done anything for years. And I finally went to a Tom Brown junior tracker school. And after I got done with that, I'm like, man, I, I, you know, they just refreshed. I'm like, man, I have all these skills and I haven't really checked out that many animals and honored them. And in the school, they were really encouraging, like, just pick up roadkill. And even if you don't eat it, if you can't eat it, even just go through and look at how the feet are. Look at the face. Look at how the body, look at the innards, everything. And so I'm like, okay, on my drive today, I'm going to pick up some roadkill and take it home. And I found a raccoon and I picked her up and I put her in the car. And when I skinned her out, I found out she had been hit in her lower legs across the lower half of her body, pelvis crushed, back legs crushed, and she was lactating. So that means somewhere out there now there are a bunch of baby raccoons that are probably going to die without their mama. And it also meant that she was run over on the back legs. So she probably had, and she had crawled to the side of the road, so she probably had had an agonizing death, trying, wanting to get back to her young, in agonizing pain, a slow, painful death. And my heart, you know, was really touched by this beautiful mother trying to get back to her young and just, just so cruelly and senselessly just being taken out and then would have just been there to not be honored if I hadn't stopped and picked her up. So it was very emotional for me and I skinned her out and everything and then I was working in a YMCA camp and now I, somebody, a, a teacher, unfortunately um, not really thinking or not really understanding, set up a scavenger hunt and one of the items on the scavenger hunt was fur. And I had this, I had skinned out her face and everything of the raccoon. I had put her up on a board and the kids not, not realizing anything had just ripped her off the board and had shredded her and pulled the tail off and a lot of things. And so I was pretty upset and I got up and, but it was a learning opportunity. I got to stand up in front of a hundred kids, high school or middle schoolers at that point and say, Hey, and tell them that story of this is more than just a piece of hide. This was a living entity, and this is what she was going through. And some of them got it, and some of them didn't, and that's just the way it is. But, um, yeah, I think that connection, that understanding is vital. <clears throat> yeah, I I think that that really matches what I think of as the the path of the huntress mm-hmm. versus the the hunter. I mean, not and it's it's not even really a gendered thing. I think that uh, any, people of any gender can engage with this, this huntress energy, but this... Um, honoring of the sacredness of life and acknowledgement of just that we are all having an experience of being alive and it's not that different you know this raccoon trying to get back to her babies is having a really intense life experience and has some kind of um attachment you know scientists are really opposed to using emotion words for animals but like we're all animals we probably all have emotions you know and um just yeah honoring honoring that wholeness of creatures and that like personal sovereignty of creatures while you're also trying to develop again the skills being really skillful and the way that women are more interested in skills so that you can make a clean kill and not have an animal go through that suffering when you're intentionally hunting it definitely i agree yes um, what is the longest survival trip that you have done? <laughs> I'd probably say migrations. The trip I did in the Serengeti, uh, we spent 35 days out there and uh, about maybe four of that wasn't as much I would call necessarily survival mode. Cause we had like at the end of the trip, we had like two days when they were giving us food and it was, it was easier and we had tents and things. So about 30, 32 days or so. And I've done month long trips as well with wilderness therapy. And again, they were bringing us food. So migrations was different in that we didn't 
didn't have a lot of the gear we'd normally have, and we didn't have nearly enough food, I would say, to really perform at top. Um, we were definitely starving as we were going across. So that's probably one of the longer trips I've done. And then I've done some solo things, but those were more like like a two-week here, two-week there, or I do some stupid things that put me in some <laughs> pretty dangerous situations. But it's not; it hasn't been all that long-term necessarily. Do you have any reflections for us on the difference between solo survival trips and group survival trips mm-hmm. and how that changes your experience? Yeah, I think for me, I tend to go on the solo trips because if I'm with other people, I'm worried about them and I tend to focus on them and I won't, I like to challenge myself. And so if I'm going on a solo trip, a big reason why it's solo is I'm going to push myself to my limits, and I don't want to have to worry about or be concerned with somebody able being able to keep up with my limits and push themselves, or vice versa. If they're able to do something more than I am, then they're trying to worry about me, and it just doesn't work for me. I don't feel like I can really challenge myself, and I'd like to think of those as soul journeys as well. It's more than just a trip. I'm going to learn something while I'm out there, and not just in the physical sense. I'll undoubtedly learn more about my own physical skills and hopefully be able to improvise and come up with new and inventive ways to take care of my needs in those situations. But it's also going to be a fundamental to me, more of a spiritual connection where I'm asking earth, what, what do you have for me on a, on an emotional level and a spiritual level as well? And so I, again, I don't feel like I can feel that connection and sense that connection as much. If I have other people around me, they tend to be distractions, just like a TV is a distraction at home. It's entertainment. And so that's not really what I'm looking for when I'm going on a solo trip. I'm looking for a connection with earth and I can't really, I don't feel like I can accomplish that if I have other people with me. I think that's really important too, for those of us who are teachers Mm -hmm. to take these solo times, because sometimes it's hard to find a group of people you can go with that aren't kind of going to be your students in some portion for some of the time, because you have a lot of skills. Um, I definitely felt that when I did my solo through hike of the Appalachian trail and was like, the first time in like seven years of, of leading backpacking trips that I got to like set my own pace and, and set my own goals and just do things on my schedule all day long. And it was a really, really deepening experience for me. Yeah. It's like, who am I when nobody else is around? So much of our identity can be caught up in how we're trying to pr- present ourselves and the mask that we put on for others. It's like, how do I drop that away? How, who am I when there's nobody else to reflect mm-hmm. that or to see who that is when it's just Mother Nature? And then I think that's beautiful to be able to do that on a solo experience and then see if we can hold that when we come back and whether we're with a group of men a group of military, a group of Boy Scouts, or women, right? Whoever it is, whenever we're in various groups, if we can hold on to that center that we find when we're alone. Absolutely. I think women are so heavily socialized to direct all of their caretaking energy outward towards others. And when we're in a group, it's hard not to do that. And I think part of the gift of the solo trip is you have to actually direct the care- your caretaking energy mm-hmm. towards yourself and learn what it is to take care of myself. Definitely. Yes, I find that too. And it's, it's freeing. It's very freeing. Wait, it's just me? Who am I? What do I do when it's just me? What do I want to do? How do I take care of me? What do I do with my free time? And that's, that's essential. Um, so how can people find out more about your work if they want to learn from you? 
Well, uh, I have a website now. It's called www.seartraining.us. So S-E-R-E training.us is my website. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me. And I'll do things for various organizations. Like right now, we're at Doe Camp. And so with VOW, Vermont Outdoors Woman. And I also work with Summit Sisters, which is similar to Doe Camp in uh, Boulder, Colorado. And that's with uh, Women's Wilderness there. So, uh, And I'm going to keep branching out. So... Keep eyes open. You'll find me somewhere. All right. So you're mostly based in Colorado, but you love to travel and teach other places, right? I do. Yeah. I'm trying to get countrywide based. So if you want to, you can come out to Boulder, Colorado or Denver area and I'll teach out there. Uh, but I'll definitely get, get a few people together and tell me what you want to learn and, and I'll fly to you. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I think people are going to be really excited to hear your reflections on all these awesome hardcore adventures you've had in your life. <laughs> uh, thanks, Murphy. Thanks for inviting me out. I appreciate it. It's great to meet you finally. Absolutely. Many thanks to Jessie for sharing her stories with us. And thanks to you for listening. I'd also like to express respect and gratitude to the Western Abenaki people, who are the indigenous inhabitants of the land where Ari and I produce this podcast. You can like the Vermont Abenaki Artists Association on Facebook if you want to hear about and support their cultural events and celebrations. The Hunters Podcast is a production of Mountain Song Expeditions, which is my wilderness school in Vermont. You can learn more about all of my hunting classes at mountainsongexpeditions.com. Our theme music is composed by Keith Murphy and performed by Yazzie Zeichner and Ari Erlbaum. If you liked today's episode, we'd love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe, and spread the word to your friends. It really helps. If you want to get in touch with me and Ari, you can email us at huntresspodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you'd like to hear more of, and we might even feature your questions in future episodes. Until next time, may your arrows fly true. This podcast is brought to you by Pocket Music. Which is actually me. I teach harmonica lessons and music workshops. That's Ari playing harmonica in the background there. So Ari, what style of harmonica do you teach? Well, I've never been very good at sticking to one style. Oh yeah? That doesn't surprise me. So what styles do you teach? Um, I teach bluesy things. Classic. What else have you got? I teach some fiddle tunes. Wow, that's really good. Is there any other style? Um, kind of a rare one, but klezmer harmonica. There is klezmer harmonica? Klezmer. That's amazing. Very Fiddler on the Roof. Is that it? Is there anything else? Well, there's one more. It's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah? What is it? It's beatboxing and playing the harmonica at the same time. What? That sounds amazing. Give us a demo. That's amazing. Just blew my mind. So if I wanted to learn harmonica, how would I get in touch with you? Well, you can come take lessons with me in Montpelier, Vermont, or you can do them through Skype. To sign up or learn more, go to www.pocketmusic.musicteachershelper.com. That's pocketmusic.musicteachershelper.com. 
all these harmonica lessons and workshops support Ari so he has more time to make this podcast. In other words, help keep my producer off the streets and in the podcast studio where he belongs, sharing Huntress stories with the world. <laughs>